Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Sam Moppin engineering. Today we're going to talk about, well, some of the headlines, but we'll also talk about what you need to know about Juneteenth, a bit of its history, not just what the event was, but what surrounded that event, and did it really mean the emancipation of slaves in the United States at that time? We'll get into that and much more. Coming up later this hour, however, we'll hear from John Stadden. He is the author of Science in an Age of Unreason. He'll uh, he'll talk with us about that, and then in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll uh, take a look at a number of issues, and I hope you'll stick around to join us. First, looking at some of the day's headlines, reaching a tipping point, Vladimir Putin has gained a wartime strategic ed in the, edge rather in the Donbass region as U.S. and Western weapons are delayed from reaching the front lines. Well, creating a bloody scene, pro-abortion protesters descended on Supreme Court Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett's home with blood and doll props. Saying it's not a hill to die on, Hillary Clinton suggested the transgender debate should not be a priority for Democrats. In the race for the White House, Republicans who are mulling a run for president are not waiting on Trump to announce whether or not he plans to run. Calling it a media opportunity, families skeptical about the Biden administration's parents' council say it's too ideological and doesn't represent genuine parental concerns. Well, panicking privately, a CNN reporter says Democrats have been worried about President Biden's inflation messaging for months. Posing a perp walk question, an MSNBC panel wonders if Jeannie Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, should be treated like a criminal by the January 6th committee. By the way, we're going to be interviewing one of the co-authors of the uh, <clears throat> the book um, on Justice uh, Thomas tomorrow in his own words. So we'll uh, tell you more about that. Calling it soul crushing, a Washington Post column, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, laments the difficult task that liberal justices face working on a conservative majority Supreme Court. So this is apparently a burden just too soul crushing for these associate justices. I don't know what happened to diversity. I suppose it's just external and not actual diversity of thought. Reflecting on the January 6th committee, Mark Levin says we live in a post-constitutional America. The... um, Washington State high school football coach fired for praying after games as being berated by Sports Illustrated. The Daily Wire reports that the magazine didn't wait for the U.S. Supreme Court's pending opinion to blast the high school football coach, Joe Kennedy, who sued after being suspended and later fired for praying for 15 seconds on the football field after a game. Sports Illustrated reports he's a human embodiment of a country that's deeply divided, a religious movement that's surging with momentum. Even an organized religion becomes increasingly less popular and most of all a powerful right wing machine, many say, is employing a timeless division tactic. Us versus them all morphed a man's unremarkable existence into an extraordinary one and imbued Kennedy with elusive, far reaching purpose. He's no longer just a man. He's now a symbol for what he his supporters term religious freedom to them. He's a hero. David slang an anti-faith Goliath to others. He's a sledgehammer aimed at a bedrock of democracy, the separation of church and state. And what its opponents describe as ongoing attempts to redefine church and state, First Liberty has argued that attempts to stifle teaching creationism and sanctioned prayer in schools represents hostility to religion. 
Those opponents see the Kennedy case as the likely next step in what they describe as an erosion of the separation. Their argument, backed by other recent rulings, that God can remain in the Pledge of Allegiance, that the federal government can give money to faith-based schools, and that religious groups can discriminate based on their beliefs when hiring. Again, quoting from Sports Illustrated. Breitbart weighs in in response, saying the main focus of Bishop's article, the Sports Illustrated writer, though, seems to be to belittle Coach Kennedy. Throughout the piece, Bishop constantly describes Kennedy as aimless, shiftless, and struggling to find meaning in his life, thereby coloring the coach as a nobody whose sudden fame, earned as a result of his case, makes him a joke of a human being. As if any of Kennedy's life's history makes any difference at all to the case that has brought him to the Supreme Court. New York signed six abortion bills into law. Life News reports that the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, signed six pro-abortion bills into law, including measures to protect abortionists, investigate pro-life pregnancy centers, and allow people to sue individuals who interfere with their so-called right to abortion. Governor Hochul, a pro-abortion Democrat, said the bills are their response to the likelihood that the U.S. Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade this summer. My friends, quoting the governor, the sky is literally on the verge of falling in the next week or two, and that's why we are here today, Hochul said, when she signed the bills. The right to control our own bodies is supposed to be settled by now, and so we thought. Political reports the new measure, uh, measures bolster protections for both residents and out-of-state women seeking abortions with an omnibus measure that would block New York courts from issuing subpoenas in connection with out-of-state abortion proceedings. No mention of the women in utero who would be the subject of said abortions. Ukraine is worried they're going to lose their eastern front. The Wall Street Journal points out that the war in Ukraine has turned into a grinding artillery contest where Russia is steadily gaining ground thanks to its overwhelming advantage in firepower. As the U.S. and allies gather to discuss fresh military aid to Kyiv, Ukraine's fate is largely dependent on how fast and in what quantities these heavy weapons arrive. Without a broad and rapid increase in military assistance, Ukraine faces a defeat in eastern Donbass region. Ukrainian officials warn that would pave the way for Russia to pursue its, its offensive to Odessa and Kharkiv after regrouping in the coming months, they say, and potentially all the way back to the capital, Kiev, after that. Western officials and analysts question whether Russia has the wherewithal to achieve this, even if it makes further gains in the Donbass area. They say Russia's military has been severely battered in the war and might lack the manpower and equipment to advance beyond the Donbass region soon. The Washington Examiner says Russia has increased its occupied territory in neighboring Ukraine threefold since its invasion began some three months ago. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up, uh, up next, we're going to hear from John Stadden, author of Science in an Age of Unreason. And uh, in the second hour, we'll take a look at headline news and what Juneteenth actually means historically and what preceded and followed that declaration. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point in his latest book, Science is in Trouble. Real questions in desperate need of answers, especially those surrounding ethnicity, gender, climate change, and almost anything related to health and safety, are swiftly buckling to the fiery societal demands of what ought to be rather than what is. Well, these foregone conclusions may be comforting, but each capitulation to modernity's whims threatens the integrity of scientific inquiry. 
Can true fact-based discovery be redeemed? Well, legendary professor of psychology and biology, Dr. John Stadden, unveils the identity crisis affiliating today's science community and provides an actionable path to recovery in his new book, Science in an Age of Reason. Well, Dr. Stadden is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Professor of Biology Emeritus at Duke University. He obtained his B.S. at University College uh, London and his Ph.D. in Experimental Psychology at Harvard University, where he also did research at the MIT Systems Lab. He is the author of more than 200 research papers and nine books, including Scientific Method, How Science Works, Fails to Work or Pretends to Work. And he was profiled in the Wall Street Journal in January of 21 as a, a commentator on the current problems of science. He joins us today to talk about his latest, Science in an Age of Unreason, published by Regnery. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. Uh, good, good to talk to you, Georgine. In the open of your book, you um, uh, state that science is about facts, but unfortunately, some facts arouse passion uh, and they should not. How did we get to the point where science is only relevant when it meets a particular narrative, but not so much if it doesn't confirm the position that I've already taken? Well, I mean, this is a human psychology problem, isn't it? People are just emotional. Uh, and if they hear a fact that they don't like, their instinct is to reject it and simply say, I don't want to hear that. I mean, there was an incident at Duke, for example, where a statistician, uh, came up with some stats about uh, African-American students and their, six, their grades in the first year compared to their senior year. And in the first year, there's quite a big gap between minority students and other students. And then by the senior year, that gap is much reduced, and that's good news, and that's just fine. But then these folks did a bit more statistical probing, and what they found is that the uh, African-American students had switched from uh, STEM courses, science, technology, and so on courses, into humanities and social sciences by the uh, last year. So the alternative interpretation was they should just switch to easier courses. And this may or may not be true. They were quite cautious in offering it as a possibility, but they were immediately denounced as racist. And that's, of course, terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It, it uh, impedes our understanding of what's going on in the university. Uh, and it intimidates people into not even reporting facts like this. So it's really, really very sad. Now, yeah, it's human psychology, but it's encouraged, I'm afraid, by uh, a lot of political movements that uh, the cancel culture, which you've heard of, I'm sure you know all about yes. that. Yeah, and it, the cancel culture simply exacerbates this trend. And uh, there are movements against it. There's an uh, organization called FIRE, which has just expanded its operations. It's called a Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And it's becoming a kind of new substitute ACLU. So the ACLU has kind of lost its way and is more of a social justice entity than a free speech entity anymore. But FIRE is trying to do something about that and free cheers for them. So is what you've just described the politicization of science the the fact that science is rendered irrelevant, that social science has become something else. What's the root of this? And is it a particularly contemporary problem or have we been moving in this direction for quite some time? Well, I think what I call the devolution of social science has been happening for a long time. And it happened with, uh, and this is again a bit inside baseball kind of thing, but if you, you know anything at all about science, you know that there are specialties. And in the 
origins of science in the 19th and 20th century, there were very few subdivisions and attempts to increase the subdivision of the British Association, British General Science uh, Association, attempts to increase the subdivision were strongly resisted. People thought this was really bad, it would impede criticism and so on and so on. Well, in the social sciences, it has absolutely progressed unimpeded. I give I give the history in the book where the American Psychological Association now has, I think it's 50-something divisions, the Sociological Association is a comparable number. There's like 100-plus subdivisions. Well, that's fine. Everybody's playing in their own puddles, or someone's going to say, but it has real implications. One is that each of these subdivisions has its own journal. And they all speak the same jargon. They criticize one another. If you don't like your division, you, it's not necessary for you to improve what you do, but you can switch to another one, which is more congenial. So it really cuts out serious criticism. And if, in fact, much of what's now called sociology was subjected to open criticism by scientists of all stripes, it, w- it would not survive. It simply would not survive. You're so right. Guy, to answer your question, it's been going on a long time. There's yeah. another matter I wanted to mention. I don't know if you're interested in pursuing it, but it's in the book because I know you are a faith person. Yes. Uh, I am not a Christian by profession, but I'm a great believer in the Judeo Christian ethic and so on. And I believe that Christianity has gravely suffered over the last few decades. But one of the things I point out in the first chapter of the book is that a lot of the legal problems, a lot of the legal problems that religious people have uh, derive from a myth, and that myth is that secular humanists have no religion. In other words, they're immune from the kinds of criticisms that are offered uh, for uh, religious people. The criticism runs, well, you believe, a humanist will say, you believe this because it says so in the Bible, and that's a bunch of myths which can't be proved scientifically. Our beliefs, they would say, derive from science. Well, they don't. As I point out, the book Science is Facts, and the secular humanists have just as many scientifically unprovable beliefs as do the religious people. And I think that uh, in cases like the one you mentioned yesterday, I was listening to your program yesterday, and the one about the coach who was uh, clobbered for praying uh, alone in the uh, midfield line. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absurd that he should be penalized for that. Uh, I, I mean, another coach could come in, in the midline and chat, chat about the wonders of being transgender and nobody would say anything. So it's it's clearly a bias against the religious belief and religious folks ought to take account of that. I think you, you're absolutely right. I think the culture has certainly suffered from the redefinition, if you will, or the disregard for science, but the scientific uh, practice has suffered as a consequence uh, as well. What's the what's the result within uh, science itself of blurring the lines or um, rejecting the hard fact of science in favor of of something else? How is this impacting scientific inquiry? Well, I mean, it's particularly bad, as I say, in the social sciences, because the social sciences are very, very hard. Most of the questions you can ask about humanity are essential, uh, essentially impossible to settle by experiment. You can't put, you can't take a child and, and raise it in an environment A and another child raise it in environment B and then look at it 30 years later and say, well, this one worked and this one didn't, right? That's the kind of experiment you can do in most of biology and, and physical science. 
So you know, the problem is you're asking almost unanswerable questions. Mm. And I think the result is, one of the results has been that methods have evolved. This is kind of, I, hope, I hope this is not too technical, but methods have evolved in, in social and biological medical, biomedical science, which seem to give clear answers, but really don't. And this is not a political issue. I think it's, it's a combination of the difficulty of the subject and the impossibility of getting clear answers combined with incentives, very strong incentives for academic researchers who are, are in a profession. They're not vocational. They're, they're doing this as a job. The incentives are for them to crank out something publishable. And I don't know how many of your readers know about this, but there is, has been something in uh, uh, social and biomedical science called the replication crisis, which started uh, with a wonderful paper in 2005 by uh, a statistician who pointed out the title of his paper was something like Why Most Published Results Are False, which is a pretty clear cut, uh, pretty brave thing to put at the title of an academic paper. <laughs> but he showed that the standard, right, the standard method used in, in these uh, uh, examples that he gave. Uh, it's a statistical method invented by a guy called R.A. Fisher, a very bright British guy in the 20s, 1920s. And uh, this method is simply uh, inappropriate for the uses to which it's been put. Um, I don't know that you're probably broadly familiar with it. The idea is you have a control group which gets a placebo, mm -hmm. something which may have no effect, and you compare it with an experimental group which gets a drug or something like that, and then you plug it into a standard statistic. And if your statistic, well, I say two things. One thing, that statistic is a model. It's a model as a testable, it should be as testable as the experiment itself. But often it's not. It's just taken standard. Everybody uses it, we'll use it. And then from that, that model, you get a result. And if you're lucky, which says that the result you got could only have occurred by chance 5% of the time or less. 5% of the time, okay? Well, it doesn't take a great insight to see that means a substantial number of results, actually more than 5% for arguments I can't go into here, will turn out to be false. Uh, another way to look at it, this is basically a one-armed bandit. It makes your experimental <laughs> procedure a one-armed bandit. The more you pull it, the more likely you are to win. And it, that, that is the incentive under which a lot of academic scientists work. They want to win. They want to get a significant result that they can then publish. So I think the method is bad as it's been used, but the incentives are, are the reason. <laughs> so you're rewarded for the number of published papers and so on that you get. Well, you want a method that gives results. And this does give, it doesn't give truth. Uh, but it gives it gives results. It gives a result, and yeah, definitely. yeah. <laughs> We're going to take I a. Mean, I mean, one of the one of the great things, one of the important things about science, you read any history of science, not recent history of science, which is a bit problematic, but if you read history of science, you see that most great discover, discoveries came at the end of a long line of failures. It's trial and error, and it's mostly error. But the modern system, as it's currently applied, is very intolerant of error. Which is mm. to me, 
which is to say it's intolerant of science. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to continue our conversation in a moment. Just wanted to uh, read a brief quote from the chapter, Are We Losing Our Way? Repeated failure is not compatible with career advancement, and science is now, for most scientists, a career, not a vocation. Failures are essential to scientific advance, but they do not play well with peer review committees. And ambitious scientists cannot afford to fail. Once again, we're uh, talking with Dr. John Stadden, his uh, latest book, Science in an Age of Unreason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. John Stadden. His latest book, Science in an Age of Unreason, he covers a variety of topics and all of the things that you've been thinking about as they relate to science and beyond. Uh, some of the contemporary issues that have um, maddened and frustrated many, race and ethnic studies, uh, systematic racism, what do racial disparities really mean, um, and, and much, much more social science, carbon dioxide, climate change, and so on. Uh, the book is, a, a, I think, a must-read. Uh, it may take you some time to get through it, but it, it offers some very important uh, information about what we're seeing and how we get from where we are to where uh, science needs to be moving forward. Uh, I want to talk to you about some of the contemporary issues that I mentioned a moment ago that I think puzzle a lot of our listeners, climate change being one of them, issues around race and so-called science being another. Let's start with uh, with climate change. Later in the program today, I'm going to talk about uh, a, a businessman who raised a question about climate change and was sent to essentially a re-education camp. We're being told the science is settled. Is uh, climate change really a looming catastrophe? Is it being handled in a scientific manner? Or is this a narrative that has been politicized or a combination of, of both? Well, I think it's a combination. I mean, they are honest climate scientists, but there's a famous uh, scientist called Freeman Dyson. Uh, he was at Princeton. He could have got Nobel Prize, but they don't give, give Nobel Prizes to more than, I think, three people or something. And he had discovered something which won a Nobel Prize. Very bright guy. And years ago, he became suspicious of climate science, not because of the details, but because of the emotion associated with it. So if anybody criticized it, they would get a hostile response. And this, this is not a normal, this is not a normal reaction to a settled result in science. If somebody comes along and says the earth is flat, he's not attacked, he simply ignores. <laughs> and so this is, this is suspicious. And I had a similar reaction. I have a friend who is very interested in this topic. He's an engineer and physicist. And the two of us got together and wrote paper about all of this. And subsequently, I expanded it in the book, uh, uh, the uh, role of carbon dioxide in, in climate change. Anyway, we sent this paper to three people, two well-known climate scientists, and a third person was a colleague in the local environment school at Duke. And I knew him. I saw him committees with him on perfectly amicable relationships. And he wrote back a very hostile letter, basically saying, stay in your lane. You know, you're not a climate scientist. What can you know? And, of course, that's an anti-science attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost anything from relativity on down can be explained so an educated person can understand the argument. Uh, There's a wonderful book by Richard Feynman, who's a brilliant, brilliant physicist, a wonderful lecturer. I recommend everybody to go look at his videos. Uh, He he wrote a book called QED, which stands for Quantum Electrodynamics, not something that trips off the tongue of the (laughs) average person. 
right? I mean, a very complicated subject. And it's a brilliant little book so that even, oh, I won't say any idiot, but I say anyone. <laughs> so even I can understand it, essentially. <laughs> well, any many with rudimentary scientific understanding can understand it and respect what's being done. And that's basically what we try to do with climate science. I mean, neither of us is an expert. We both are reasonably well-educated. My friend Peter is, knows a lot of physics and engineering. I do a lot of biology and so on. And we put together, uh, we went through the literature and so forth and made sense of it. And we could not come to the conclusion that a cataclysm is around the corner. It's just impossible from the data. It's a very difficult question, admittedly, but it's simply alarmist to say that there's going to be a cataclysm. Another result that we and a lot of other people, there's something called the CO2 coalition that discusses this at length. We we came to the conclusion that it's not necessarily the case that more CO2 is bad. I mean, one obvious effect of it is it grows more plants. Plants Mm -hmm. like it, and the level now is not that high. It's actually quite low compared to its level in historical times, millions of years ago and so on. So that part, uh, uh, the the evil of CO2 seems at best questionable. The other part is CO2 driving uh, the climate, well, that's more tricky, but uh, the models that have been done are impossible. I mean, they uh, involve you know millions of variables and so on. So they're just too complicated. They don't agree with one another. We don't know why they don't agree and so on. Uh, there are some simpler models called full physics models, which try and explain planetary characteristics on all the planets which have atmospheres, you know, Venus, Earth, Mars, and so on. And they work tolerably well. They don't point to any cataclysm. But, you know, they are very, very simplified. Um, The other thing we could could look at, and this this is the easy one for people to understand, it's not not rocket science, is is there a correlation historically that is going back hundreds of thousands or even millions of years? Is there a correlation between the carbon dioxide level and the planetary temperature? Now, stop me if I go on too long, but... (laughs) Uh, obviously, assessing, estimating planetary temperature back millions of years is tough. I mean, you have to infer it from indirect measures and so on. But part, over the past 700,000 years, I think it is, there's actually a very good correlation. There's actually a very good correlation between CO2 and temperature, which supports the CO2 argument, except if you look at the details of the correlation, what you find is very often the temperature goes up and the CO2 concentration goes up about 800 years later. Now, even the most creative science scientist uh, is unwilling to infer that a cause follows its effect, right? <laughs> that's rather unlikely. So that's not always the case, but the point is that you can heat the Earth and generate carbon dioxide, comes out of the ocean, water, warm water holds less gas, or uh, the carbon dioxide could cause the heating, and there's a mix of the two, no matter how you uh, uh, look at it, we decided it's not a cause. It's a catastrophe is not looming over the horizon. That was our conclusion. There is some warming, um, probably less than estimated, but it's not even certain that it's going to be that bad. Um, should I stop? Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, but it raises the question, how free are scientists to investigate sensitive subjects or to question uh, scientific um, notions that are widely held, but are you know should be subject to to questioning in the scientific method. Well, that's a very good question, and the answer is they're not flexible. As, uh, 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 
as our little uh, interaction with my colleagues shows, um, there's great resistance to uh, academic papers that present uh, something contrary to prevailing view. It's, it's, it's more in areas that have political significance like climate change. Um, if you send a paper on climate change to a climate journal, uh, it will be reviewed as these papers typically are. They'll be sent out to two or three anonymous reviewers. And on that basis, the editor will eventually publish it or not publish it after a lag of months. I and mean, it's a very inefficient system. I'll write a little bit about that also. Mm -hmm. So it will be very difficult. It'll be very difficult. Um, in a non-political area, it, it, not more than usual. The thing is that everybody refers to peer review as if it's kind of a biblical blessing <laughs> uh, cast you given given to these cases. And that's not, not true. Yeah, peer review is simply can it, it can do two things. It can find obvious mistakes and obvious errors of exposition unclear. The paper is not clear, explain it, and so on. Or these data don't add up. It can find a few simple things. It can't reanalyze the data in most cases because it's raw data is not in the paper and it would take too long to reanalyze it anyway. Reviewers are not paid and they have limited time to work on it. So it can do kind of low-level vetting of the paper. The other thing it can do which is in some ways more critical. It's the consensus of the paper. Consensus of the paper. I mean, the competition to get a paper into Nature or Science of the two big, which are the two big uh, journals. The competition to get into Nature and Science is horrendous, and the rejection rate is really, really high. I'm sorry for the background noise. There's a small <laughs> mammal here making a noise, um, and I think he, she can hear some of the stuff that's going on in the background. Um, anyway, uh, you. They, because the competition is so high for both publication and for money, for grant money, even a hint of disagreement can lead to rejection of your grant application or rejection of your paper. So that is a huge negative, a huge negative, and an imperfection in the current system. I talk in the book about, about, about some possible ways to modify this and so on, but it's, still, it's an ongoing debate. A lot of people are interested in it. Yeah, yeah. And my point here for the public is when somebody says it's peer-reviewed, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> it doesn't mean quite what one over. might think. Now, I need to take a quick right. break. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Okay, just one moment. Uh, once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. John Stadden, his book, Science in an Age of Unreason. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. John Stadden, who is graciously consented to uh, stay with us for a few more moments. His book is titled Science in an Age of Unreason, and he covers uh, such a broad swath of subjects that are, are worth reading in detail. And I apologize because a conversation like this doesn't do justice to the work that he has done, but we hope we will at least whet your appetite and you'll consider the book published by Regnery Gateway, by the way. Uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Stadden, thank you so much for uh, for staying with us. wanted to ask you a couple of questions before our time runs out. Uh, how, um, let me ask you about, um, oh, it's the, the subject I'm looking at. How sound is social science, especially with regard to race and ethnic studies? As an African American, I'm frustrated by much of what passes for scientific, uh, discovery. I find some of it insulting and not very credible. How sound is the social science in this particular area? 
Well, a simple answer is it ain't sound. I mean, I uh, ran across the idea of systemic racism before it became a really a big thing and wrote a, a piece about it, kind of sat silent for a year or two. But my problem with it is I couldn't see how you could measure it. I mean, in, in social science, it's a basic idea called construct validity. If you come up with an idea, you have to be able to validate it. And I couldn't get any measurement that anybody had done uh, for systemic racism. Um, it's either assumed, you know, the New York Times, a lot of articles where people assume that, you know, yeah, the course is systemic racism. My colleagues in the university seem to assume that there's systemic racism. Uh, and the only bit of evidence for it is that there are racial disparities in uh, wealth and health and, you know, a lot of other things to do with economics. And that's given as an explanation for, uh, not as an explanation, but as an example of systemic racism. But of course, there are many, many possible causes for this. Um, I mean, the wealth gap reflects all sorts of things. Systemic racism in the literal sense, that is, uh, laws in the system that we should discriminate against, uh, discriminate against black, are illegal. It hardly exists anymore. The only demonstrable example of systemic racism in that case is affirmative action, where black kids are indeed admitted with lower, lower scores and so on than white kids in many cases. And there are reasons for that. Oh, I'm sorry, my dog is really noisy. She's usually quiet. <laughs> um, yeah, there are reasons. There are reasons for that, which are you can argue, but it, uh, and there are of course contrary arguments. Equal opportunity is supposed to be the best way to proceed. And so on. So systemic racism re- really rests on no foundation at all. Uh, unfortunately, it's been advocated quite successfully by people like Mr. Kendi, Professor Kendi, and this uh, lady. Um, what's her name? Um, blocking on the name, the uh, privileged lady. Um, and very successful. I mean, Kendi's book just takes it for granted that if there are disparities, then that's racist, which is nonsense. People differ. People differ in every dimension within the white population, within the black population, within the Asian population. And these differences are not, don't make these populations identical. They don't make people interchangeable and so on. So ignoring that, uh, allows you to come up with this idea of systemic racism. And I think it's really, really unfortunate. I mean, it's motivated a lot of people in bad ways. Uh, and the fact that it can't be um, it can't be measured just makes it stronger. Because if you could measure it, you could show it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. The fact yeah. Is, it's, yeah, I mean, the fact is, it looks as if, in what I call endogenous differences, like differences in people's abilities and interests, produce differences between groups. Some people are good at this, some people are good at that. And these differences are covered up and the differences that result in in their life consequences, the differences that result are called the result of systemic racism. And so it blocks inquiry into what the real causes of these differences are. And some of them may be curable, I'm sure a lot of them are, but others may not be. And you're not ever going to get as many uh, women in uh, theoretical physics as in nursing, for example. I mean, it's just because the interests and, to some extent, the abilities are different. So what? I mean, that's the vive la différence and all that. Yeah. These days, however, just raising the issue makes you a sexist or a racist, which is unfortunate. That leads to my final question. The facts of science seem to have been replaced by arguments of passion. 
How do we return to a facts-based science? Or is it possible, and are you optimistic? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think I've heard that one before. I'm um, really, really uncertain about it. I think the only way to return to it is to keep banging the drum. Science is about facts, guys. It's it's not about whether we have a social justice or environmental reform or whatever. It's about facts. That's when you encounter a fact. I mean, students should be taught when you encounter a fact. Your first reaction must be: Is it true? Is it really a fact or not? Only then can you get alarmed or excited about it. And just keep saying it over and over again. Education seems to me to be be the really the only way to proceed. But, you know, I'm better at finding problems and fixing them, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, once again, the book is um, definitely worth reading, and I would encourage our listeners to do that. Science in an Age of Unreason. Professor uh, Stadden, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us about it. And congratulations. I understand the book was released today. It was indeed. Thank you very much, Georgine, for allowing me to talk about it. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Again, Professor Dr. John Stadden, Science in an Age of Unreason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Moppin Engineering today's program. We're going to work our way through some additional headlines, what you need to know about Juneteenth, not just the date and what happened on that date, what preceded and followed uh, that date and the announcement made. We'll get into that on Social Security. The obligations of this unfunded um, program, or at least portions of it, is worsening. In Medicare, there's a warning that's been issued. That and much more coming up this hour of the Georgine Rice Show. But first, some of the day's headlines. Well, Democrats are urging party leaders to help curtail Obamacare premium spikes. According to business leaders, a large group of House Democrats are stepping up pressure on party leaders to revive their stalled economic agenda and avoid hitting voters with huge health care bills only weeks before the November midterms. Fifty-seven members of the centrist New Democrat Coalition, it's led by Representative Susan Del Ben of Washington, signed a letter meant to highlight the steep health insurance premium increase that many people would face if the uh, pandemic era financial assistance program expires in December. The cohort in, uh, included many Democratic lawmakers locked in tight reelection races this fall. Also, a Gallup poll finds belief in God has hit an all time low among Americans. We'll go into greater detail later in the program if time permits. But Axios reports the number of Americans who believe in God has dropped to the lowest level in the 78 years. Gallup has asked the question per a poll out last Friday. Driving the news, 81 percent of U.S. adults say they believe in God, down six points from 2017. Belief in God dropped the most among young adults, liberals and Democrats, with these groups showing a drop of 10 percent or more uh, compared to an average um, of polls from 2013 to 2017, Gallup found. More than 90 percent of Americans believed in God between 44 and 2011. Conservatives and married adults experienced little change in their beliefs and other subgroups, including education levels and ages, experienced but a modest decline. Vice President Kamala Harris claims abortion doesn't go against church teachings. 
I'm not sure what chapter and verse she would cite, but Town Hall reports the vice president argued that people can still support abortion without having to give up their religious beliefs as the U.S. Supreme Court is potentially set to overturn the landmark Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision. Now, interestingly, one's religious beliefs are irrelevant. What the scripture teaches and what God demands is what is really important. And uh, squaring those up, I suppose, is most important to him. Harris said that there's no conflict between religious faith and support for the widespread protection over abortion. RNC research says the vice president, for those of us of faith, I think that we agree there's nothing about this issue of abortion that will require anyone to abandon their faith. The Daily Wire says Catholics, evangelical Protestants and many Jews believe abortion goes against their faith. And Stephen Mansfield, Lord have mercy. This woman is either ignorant or deeply deceived. Kamala Harris argues there is no conflict between abortion rights and religious faith, end quote. Planned Parenthood will halt abortions in Wisconsin. Abortion could suddenly become illegal in the state. So Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is adding more abortion appointments through the 25th of this month. After that, they're suspending appointments and directing patients to facilities out of state. That is, of course, if the Supreme Court announces its decision overturning Roe versus Wade. The reason behind this move is not to disrupt care for those seeking an abortion as the country awaits that decision from the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the FBI is finally investigating terror attacks on pregnancy clinics by pro-abortion radicals. The Washington Times reports the FBI confirmed on Friday it is investigating attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers and churches, episodes of violence and vandalism that surged after the leak of a Supreme Court draft opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade. The FBI is investigating a series of attacks and threats targeting pregnancy resource centers and faith-based organizations across the country, the FBI told the Washington Times. The FBI takes all threats seriously, and we continue to work closely with our law enforcement partners and will remain vigilant to protect our communities, end quote. The FBI National Press Office statement followed a full court press from House and Senate Republicans, pro-life leaders and religious groups urging the president to take action on violent incidents carried out by shadowy activists and extremist groups such as Jane's Revenge. Swimming's world governing body, FINA, 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 not sure how it's pronounced, voted to bar trans athletes from competing against women. ESPN reports that on Sunday, the group voted to restrict the participation of transgender athletes in elite women's uh, competitions and created a working group to establish an open category for them in some events as part of its new policy. The new policy will require transgender competitors to have completed their transition by the age of 12 to be able to compete in women's competitions. The regulations would have a major impact on the career of Leah Thomas, who earlier this year became the first openly transgender woman to win that NC2A division won women's swimming title. Democrats are anxious over President Biden's inflation messaging. Town Hall says that during CNN's Inside Politics, Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona said that Democrats have been panicking privately over the president's inflation messaging for months. When asked about a meeting between Democrats and White House aides, Zanona acknowledged that it didn't go as planned. Not well, to put it mildly. Listen, Democrats, they have been panicking privately, privately rather. They've been saying for months back in December, they've started pressing the White House to get a handle on inflation, start talking about this issue. Zanona told uh, Abby Phillips, the host of the program, Democrats in no surprising way tried to play the blame game, pinning the disastrous issue on someone else rather than themselves. Zanona 
said Democrats urge Congress to just blame other people, blame corporate greed, start talking about uh, what we're doing legislatively to talk about these issues. President Biden's economic advisor says a recession is not inevitable. National Economic Council Director Brian Deese on Sunday claimed that a recession isn't inevitable, despite a recent poll that found more than 60 percent of CEOs around the world are expecting a recession before the end of 2023. Now, to suggest that a recession is not inevitable suggests that something is being done to prevent that from happening. So far, not much evidence. Deese's comments on CBS Face the Nation echoed President Biden's assertion on Thursday that a recession is not inevitable. Not only is a recession not inevitable, but I think that a lot of people are underestimating those strengths and the resilience of the American economy, Deese said, referring to strengths including increased household savings and low proportions of people missing payments on mortgages and credit cards. Economic analysts predict a recession may be imminent given the Federal Reserve has started to reverse its accommodative monetary policy. The Fed announced last week it would hike its benchmark interest rate by 0.75 percent, marking the largest singular increase since 1994. And Russian soldiers are facing a morale crisis. The Independent reports that whole Russian units are still refusing orders and armed standoffs are happening between soldiers and officers, according to the British Defense Ministry. Its assessment of the war in Ukraine said both sides were committing committed to intense combat in the eastern Donbass region and were likely experiencing variable morale. Ukrainian forces have likely suffered desertions in recent weeks. However, Russian morale highly likely remains especially troubled, the U.K. Defense Ministry said on Sunday. It said low Russian morale was likely driven by factors including perceived poor leadership, very heavy casualties and problems with pay. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to work through some of the day's headlines. We'll talk about Juneteenth. Today is the federal holiday, or at least in most states, and much more. So stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Disney's Woke Lightyear, the film missed the target in box office sales. Pixar's Lightyear and Origin story about the astronaut who inspired the Buzz Lightyear action figure from the Toy Story movies nabbed $51 million in ticket sales at 4,255 locations across the U.S. and Canada during its debut weekend, according to the studio estimates. A respectable but lower than expected haul. The Wall Street Journal says Lightyear has garnered some controversy as 14 countries in the Middle East and Asia have banned its theatrical release after Disney declined to remove depictions of a same-sex relationship, including a kiss between two married female characters. Pro-abortion protests reached Judge Amy Coney Barrett's home in Virginia. The protests have been popping up all over the country, disrupting Catholic churches, doctors, offices and pro-life centers, all in hopes of keeping their right to kill an innocent child before it even gets a chance to life. In the latest event, pro-choice protesters gathered outside the Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett's home in Virginia, Virginia, rather, holding signs that read abortion on demand and without apology, while also having baby dolls taped to their wrists. The group Rise Up for Abortion Rights were... um, dressed in white clothing with what appears to be fake blood soaked onto the pants between the women's um, legs, uh, which they said represented an increase in number of forced abortions uh, if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned. The U.K. has granted the U.S. Julian Assange extradition. 
On Friday, the British court greenlighted the U.S. extradition request for WikiLeaks creator Julian Assange. The message from the British Home Office stated that the U.K. courts have not found that it would be oppressive, unjust, or an abuse of process to extradite Mr. Assange. Following his publishing of a slew of classified U.S. documents that prosecutors allege helped then-U.S. Army intelligence analyst Bradley Manning Steele, he has been on the U.S. most wanted list. Charged with 17 counts of espionage, the U.S. has long sought to bring the Australian national into custody. Serious doubts about a gun deal have emerged as Senate conservatives begin their push, the push back. Stephen Colbert's staff was arrested at the U.S. Capitol complex for unlawful entry into the House building. And Justice Clarence Thomas received a surprise defense from Justice Sotomayor. By the way, we'll be talking about his uh, biography tomorrow with one of the co-authors of that book. Texas and Arizona sent 79 buses full of 2,500 illegal migrants to Washington, D.C. And President Biden's sinking popularity isn't enough to bring Hillary Clinton back in 2024. The head of the World Health Organization now privately blames a Chinese lab for the pandemic. But don't say it too loud. The youth suicide spike is being linked to increased access to puberty blockers and sex change hormones, according to a new study. Well, on this day in history, 1782, Congress approves the Great Seal of the United States, featuring an image of the bald eagle. 1867, President Andrew Johnson announces the purchase of Alaska from the Russian government. 1893, the jury in New Bradford, Massachusetts, finds Lizzie Borden not guilty of the axe murders of her father and stepmother. 1921, U.S. Representative Alice Mary Robertson, a Republican from Oklahoma, becomes the first woman to preside over a session of the House of Representatives. 1943, race-related rioting erupts in Detroit. Federal troops would be sent in two days uh, later to quell the violence that resulted in more than 30 deaths. 1967, Muhammad Ali is convicted in Houston of violating selective service laws by refusing to be drafted and is sentenced to five years in prison. His conviction would be overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. 1975, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, starring Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, and a mechanical sharp named Bruce, is released by Universal Pictures. 1977, the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline is opened. 1999, NATO formally ends its bombing of Yugoslavia after verifying the government had withdrawn its forces from the Serbian province of Kosovo. In the year 2001, Houston mother Andrea Yates drowns her five children in the family bathtub, then calls police. She would be convicted of murder. However, the conviction would be overturned and she would be acquitted by reason of insanity in a retrial. 2014, President Obama invokes executive privilege over documents related to the Fast and Furious weapons program. 2014, IRS Commissioner John Koskinen, he refuses to apologize during a hearing for lost emails that might have shed light on the tax agency's targeting of Tea Party and other groups before the 2010 and 2012 elections. And finally, on this day in history, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that a Peace Cross War Memorial on public land outside Washington, D.C., can stand, determining a uh, in a 7-2 decision that it does not violate the Constitution. Well, for many of you, today is a day off. It is Juneteenth officially as the federal holiday, but the day actually took place on the 19th. 
Well, it first took um, place long after the Emancipation Proclamation, which most Americans at least had been more familiar with. Abraham Lincoln's famed Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 only began the process of total abolition of slavery in the U.S. It was a process that ended with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, but that was in December of 1865. Well, the reality was that emancipation generally followed the advance of the Union Army. Texas often remained far afield of the action in the Civil War, and it wasn't very until very late, after Confederate General Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox, that the Union Army took control of the state. The Union um, General Gordon Granger's proclamation was uh, what informed those in the, the state that Slavery had ended when Union General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, on the 19th of June, 1865. One of the first things he did was to make a proclamation that all slaves in the state were henceforth free. Now, I'll talk a little bit more and put a qualifier on the word free. It didn't it happen exactly that way. But the proclamation was the general order three. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. Again, didn't happen quite that way. The freedom, uh, the freedmen rather, are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either uh, there or elsewhere. Dranger's proclamation didn't immediately set off celebrations among freed slaves. Many remained in fear of their former masters as the war was winding down. However, many certainly knew the implications of what had happened, or at least the announcement of what had happened. A year later, on the first anniversary of Granger's proclamation, Juneteenth saw open celebrations by the freedmen across the state of Texas. Again, that was the last outpost to which the announcement was made following the emancipation that had been Uh, signed by the president some two years earlier. Well, the jubilation following uh, Granger's announcement in Galveston moved across Texas quickly, reaching the state's 250,000 enslaved people. A year later, a spontaneous holiday called Juneteenth formed uh, from the words June and the 19th that began to be celebrated by the newly freed people of Galveston and other parts of Texas. These spontaneous celebrations across the state grew and became more organized. The Freedmen's Bureau, an agency created to transition freed slaves to lives as free men and women, began the first organized celebration of Juneteenth in Austin, Texas in 1867. From its origin as a celebration, the emancipation in Texas, which again came two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Juneteenth grew in popularity and it spread to other states. The holiday declined in popularity in the 20th, mid-20th century, but had, had has had a revival in the 1980s and now, of course, is a holiday in 47 states and the District of Columbia, although it sometimes go by, goes by other names such as Liberation Day or Freedom Day. More on what happened Following that pronouncement, the last state to be uh, given the news when we return, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, of course, is for many a federal holiday, Juneteenth. The actual day was June 19th, 1865. It was the Black 
Dock workers in Galveston, Texas, who first heard the word that freedom for the enslaved had come. There were speeches, sermons, shared meals, mostly held at black churches and the safest places to have such celebrations. But the emancipation that took place in Texas that day in 1865 was just the latest in what had been a series of emancipations that had been unfolding since the 1770s. Most notably, the Emancipation Proclamation that was signed by President Lincoln two years earlier on the 1st of January, 1863. But of course, there was a civil war at the time. In the book, Black Ghosts of Empire, between the 70s, 1780s and the 1930s during the era of liberal empire and the rise of modern humanitarianism over 80 80 80 emancipations from slavery occurred from Pennsylvania in 1780 to Sierra Leone in 1936. There were, in fact, 20 separate emancipations here in the United States alone from 1780 to 1865 across the U.S. North and South. Well, emancipations didn't remove all the shackles that prevented black people from obtaining full citizenship rights, nor did emancipations prevent states from enacting their own laws that prohibited black people from voting or living in white neighborhoods. In fact, emancipations were actually designed to force blacks and the federal government to pay reparations to slave owners, not to the formerly enslaved. They ensured that uh, white slave owners maintained advantages in accruing and passing down wealth across generations. Well, the emancipations shared three common features that, when added together, merely freed the enslaved people in one sense, but re-enslaved them in another. Well, the first, arguably the most important, was the ideology of gradualism, which said that atrocities against black people would be ended slowly over a long and open-ended period. The second feature was state legislators who who held uh, fast to the racist principle that emancipated people were units of slave owner, owner property, not captives who had been subjected to crimes against humanity. The third was the insistence that black people had to take on various forms of debt in order to exist or rather exit slavery. This included economic debt exacted by the ongoing forced and underpaid work that freed people had to pay to slave owners, sort of indentured servitude, if you will. Uh, In essence, freed people had to pay for their freedom while enslavers had to be paid to allow them to be free. And again, those terms, words are qualified. In March of 1780, for instance, Pennsylvania's state legislature set a global precedent for how emancipations would pay reparations to slave owners and buttress the system of white property rule. The Pennsylvania Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery stipulated that all persons, as well Negroes and mulattoes as others, uh, who shall be born within this state from and after the passing of this act, shall not be deemed or considered as servants for life or slaves. At the same time, the legislation prescribed, and I'm quoting, that every Negro and mulatto child born within the state could be held in servitude until the age of 28 years and liable to like correction and punishment as enslaved people. So they're not technically slaves, but they could not be freed until they were 28 uh, and they would be liable to coercion and punishment as if they were enslaved people. After that first Emancipation Day in Pennsylvania, enslaved people still remained in bondage for the rest of their lives unless voluntarily freed by the slave owner. Only the newborn children of enslaved women were nominally free after the Emancipation Day. But even then, these children were forced to serve as bonded laborers from childhood until their 28th birthday. All future emancipations shared that Pennsylvania DNA. 
Emancipation Day came to Connecticut in Rhode Island on the 1st of March in 1784. On the 4th of July, 1799, it dawned in New York. And on the 4th of July, 1804, in New Jersey. After 1838, West Indian people in the United States began commemorating the British Empire's Emancipation Day. That was on August the 1st. The District of Columbia's Day came on the 16th of April in 1862. Eight months later, on the 1st of January, 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the enslaved only in Confederate states, not in the states loyal to the Union, like New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri. So it was limited in scope. Emancipation Day dawned in Maryland in 1864. In the following year, it was granted uh, in Virginia and on the May the 8th in Mississippi and Florida a few days later. On the 29th of May in Georgia, the 19th of June in Texas, and on August the 8th in Tennessee and Kentucky. Well, after the Civil War, the three Reconstruction Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, each one contained loopholes that aided the ongoing oppression of black communities. The 13th Amendment in 1865 allowed for the enslavement of incarcerated people through convict leasing. And so many uh, African-Americans were convicted so that they could be leased out as if they were slaves. The Fourth Amendment of 1868 permitted incarcerated people to be denied the right to vote. The 50th Amendment of um, 1870 failed to explicitly bland forms of voter suppression that targeted black voters and would intensify during the coming of the Jim Crow era. Uh, The inaugural Juneteenth gave way to the horror of Jim Crow. Well, in fact, Granger's order number three on the 19th of June in 1865 spelled it out. Freeing the slaves, the order read, involves an absolute equality of personal rights and the rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them become that between employer and hired labor. Yet the order further stated the freed are advised to remain at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. Well, since the moment emancipation celebration started in 1780, all the way up to June 19, 1865, black crowds gathered to seek redress for slavery. And the first Juneteenth in Texas, and increasingly so during the ones that followed, free people celebrated their resilience amid the failure of emancipation to bring full and real freedom. They stood for the end of debt bondage, racial policing and discriminatory laws that unjustly harmed black communities. They elevated their collection, collective imagination from Uh, out of a spiritual sinkhole of property rules that existed at the time. Well, over the decades, the traditions of Juneteenth ripened into larger gatherings in public parks with barbecue picnics, firecrackers and street parades, brass bands. At the end of his 1999 posthumously published novel, Juneteenth, black author Ralph Ellison, he called for a poignant question to be asked on Emancipation Day. How do we get love into politics or compassion into history? The question calls for a pause as much today as ever before. As I mentioned, the inaugural Juneteenth gave way to the horror of Jim Crow in the 1900s, the blight uh, on U.S. history. I won't go into much more uh, detail, but it is a perfect opportunity not only to look back at what began as an emancipation that was imperfectly stated and certainly imperfectly applied, but is an opportunity as well to cheer black success from that date forward. So I will leave it 
at that. Uh, this being the, f- the second, I guess, it's the second federal holiday in 47 states in the District of Columbia, known as Juneteenth. Well, in other news, our Social Security program is running dry and policymakers have no plan to fix it. Generations of Americans have been duped into believing it's a good deal, but Social Security was established to prevent older Americans from living in poverty once they were unable to work. But the program's unchecked expansions have made that outcome anything but secure for current and future workers. The Social Security Board of Trustees reports that the program will run out of money in 2034. And that means anyone 55 or younger today won't receive a single full benefit. And most current retirees will be subject to 23 percent benefit cuts, an average loss of about forty four hundred dollars per year. That's assuming nothing is done. Preventing benefit cuts will require an immediate payroll um, tax increase from twelve point four percent to fifteen point eight percent. Not likely to happen anytime soon. That amounts to twenty three hundred dollars more per year and ten thousand eight hundred dollars in total Social Security taxes for the median household with sixty eight thousand dollars in earnings. It's also a far cry from the program's original promise that Social Security would never take more than six percent from workers paychecks. Well, even as Social Security's shortfalls continue to rise, the U.S. financial outlook seriously deteriorated over just the past two years. And policymakers must act now. And Congress has a choice to make. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I had quite a bit of stuff I wanted to cover today, but we'll have to postpone that to uh, tomorrow. So hope you'll uh, you'll join us uh, then. The Medicare trustees issued an annual report last week, um, and they buried, it's actually a couple of weeks ago now, um, buried under other important news from the Department of Health and Human Services, including the announcement of a new Office of Environmental Justice. Apparently, the administration is more interested in advancing uh, that ideology than addressing the real and immediate warnings outlined in that Medicare report. Originally um, uh, detailed with charts and graphs, the report describes the troubled state of the $839 billion Medicare program. To start the Medicare hospital insurance program, which you pay for with about 2.9% payroll tax, will soon be running tens of billions of dollars in deficits and is facing insolvency in just six years. Last year, the trustees said the hospitalization program would be depleted And 2026 rather than 2028, that's about the only good news in this year's report. When insolvency hits, it means that Medicare will not have the money to pay all your Medicare bills, your benefits. When it happens, schedule now um, for 2028, Medicare benefit payments will be cut by 10%. Without a remedy for the shortfall, tens of billions in trust fund deficits will rapidly accumulate. Medicare benefit cuts will progressively deepen and beneficiaries access to hospital services could be sharply compromised. Hospital insurance trust funds uh, fund assets rather are just 40 percent of expenditures. The trustee recommend that assets should equal at minimum 100 percent of hospital insurance expenditures in any given year. For a permanent solution to the Medicare trust fund problem, the trustees say it would take an immediate payroll tax hike from 2.9% to 3.60% or an immediate cut in benefits by 15%. The more likely congressional remedies will likely be a combination of tax increases and benefit payment cuts phased in over time. 
although there isn't much time for that to happen. Well, with this two-year reprieve, there is time, but not time to waste. The longer Congress delays taking action, the more painful these tax increases or benefit cuts become. You combine that with the situation with Social Security, and it seems that there's serious work for Congress to do. As an aging person, looking at some point in the future, this is a greater concern than it was, say, five years ago for me personally, and perhaps for some of you as well. Well, in other news, a Christian factory worker in Scotland was awarded more than $26,000 last week after an employment tribunal found a company policy and its application were indirectly discriminatory. Well, a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, this employee had lost a job as a result of the discrimination toward him. Employment judge Louise Cowan said at the tribunal in Dundee, according to The Telegraph, his religion and the wearing of his necklace were of deep and profound meaning to him. Well, he was working as a qualities inspector at Two Sisters Food Group Limited in Scotland when his supervisor ordered him to take off the necklace, which was a gift from his mother. The tribunal heard that the um, employee was told by his line manager that his necklace, which had 30 small links and was um, sanctified during his godchild's baptism, posed a hazard as the chicken wholesaler. Well, according to the company's foreign body control policy, jewelry is not allowed to be worn in the production areas on site, with the exception of a single plain band ring. Religious jewelry is possibly allowed following a risk assessment, but such an assessment was never carried out for this employee by the supervisor. The panel was further told. Well, he kept wearing the necklace. He was fired for not obeying an instruction because he was in his probationary period. His employment ended immediately. Well, his firing was based entirely on the non-declaration of the necklace during the induction course he went through at the time of joining that uh, employment. But has been awarded $26,000 for being fired for wearing that particular piece of jewelry. Well, President Biden's top aides are weighing whether he can be or should be Um, taking serious executive action to help women in Republican-controlled states obtain abortions if the Supreme Court eliminates a a woman's right to end her pregnancy, according to senior administration officials. Now, whether or not that would uh, withstand uh, court challenge remains to be seen, or whether or not executive action is forthcoming. But some of the ideas under consideration include declaring a national public health emergency, readying the Justice Department to fight any attempt by states to criminalize travel for the purpose of obtaining an abortion and asserting that Food and Drug Administration regulations granting approval to abortion medications preempt any state bans, the official says. Well, you might um, consider that the medical uh, drug abortion is now increasing in its popularity, and that will be the next um, battlefield, one would assume, in this fight over the protection of the unborn. We'll continue to follow that story once the Supreme Court's decision is announced, whether the president decides to issue an executive order and if states take on the medical medication abortion uh, that has recently been made possible. The International Swimming Federation, F-I-N-A, FINA, announced a new policy on Sunday to ban biologically male athletes who have gone through male puberty from competing in women's competitions. This is 
in swimming. To qualify as women's competitors, the swimmers have to either have never gone through male puberty or had male puberty suppressed at the age when physical changes began to appear or before the age of 12, whichever occurs later, according to the policy. The athletes also have to prove that they have continuously suppressed their testosterone levels since that time. We have to protect the rights of our athletes to compete, but we also have to protect competitive fairness at our events, especially the women's categories at the FINA competitions. The policy also includes proposals for an additional open competition category. Uh, They're set to form a new working group that will spend six months studying the most effective ways to set up the new category. And that's not to mention the challenges of going through puberty blockers at a very young age. Well, the upcoming three C's initiative meetings uh, present a critically important opportunity for the initiative's partners to work together to reboot their commitment to advancing shared values and pragmatic policies that enhance economic freedom and security. Well, the latest annual summit in business forum will be hosted in Latvia today and tomorrow. Unambiguously, the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's Russia underscores the elevated importance of the initiative, which promotes connectivity among 12 key European nations near Russia for the United States and its allies in the Three Seas region. As Latvia's president uh, summed it up, it's high time to take the Three Seas initiative to the next level with an added imperative to focus on how the Three Seas platform can help Ukraine in resisting Russia's aggression and rebuilding its infrastructure. Well, I uh, anticipated uh, having much more time to uh, talk about this, but I'll revisit it tomorrow. I'd heard from a local pastor who had some things he wanted to add, but I'll just mention this uh, belief in God survey that apparently has dipped to 81% and that's a new low. Now it might be encouraging to hear 81% believe in God, but that's down from 87% in 2017. The last time Gallup uh, conducted the survey four in 10 believe God can intervene on people's behalf, but a good number don't believe um, that's the case. Well, the vast majority of U.S. adults believe in God, but the 81% who do so is down six percentage points from 2017 and is the lowest in Gallup's trend. Between 1944 and 2011, more than 90% of Americans believed in God. Now, this is a very general idea. We're not necessarily narrowing it to the God of the Bible, but believed in the concept of God. Well, Gallup's May 2nd through 22nd Values and Beliefs poll found that 17% of Americans say they do not believe in God. They first asked this question, as I mentioned, in 1944, repeating it again in 1947 and twice each in 1950s and 60s. And those latter four surveys, a consistent 98% said they believed in God. When Gallup asked the question nearly five decades later in 2011, 92% of Americans said they believed in God as well. A subsequent survey in 2013 found belief dipped below 90% to 87%, roughly where it stood in three subsequent updates in 2014 and 2017. They also, um, uh, in recent years, asked other questions aimed at measuring belief in God or a higher power, as some refer to the God of um, of the universe. All f- uh, find the vast majority of Americans say they believe, when given the option, 5% to 10%, have said they were unsure. Now, we're, we'll talk more about this survey uh, most likely tomorrow because I think it's definitely worth mentioning. And I appreciated what local pastor um, Greg Allen had to say about what he and his church uh, are doing, not just in response to this survey, but as they have committed to praying 
on a regular basis for an awakening in this country, how they responded to what could be very discouraging uh, survey. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow. As I mentioned, I'm looking forward to a conversation with one of the co-authors of the the uh, biography of Justice Clarence Thomas. That's coming up tomorrow. I'll be talking with um, uh, Mr. Mark Paoletta. The book uh, is uh, a biography of Justice Clarence Thomas. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering. Thank you for listening. Hope we'll talk again tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.